Welcome to the Weekly Insight Podcast, where we break down the noise of the week and help you understand the psychology of the markets with your host, Andrew Dore at Insight Wealth Group. Good morning. Welcome to the latest edition of the Weekly Insight Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Dore. I appreciate you taking a little bit of time this week to hear what we think about what's going on in the world and the markets and the economy. Before we get started, I will just remind you what I say every week, which is that what you're about to hear today should not be construed as individual investment advice. As always, if you hear anything here today that makes you think about your own portfolio, I would encourage you to talk to your investment advisor or certainly give us a call if you'd like to have a discussion. Let's dive in. This week, a little different. Coming back from the Labor Day weekend, I hope everybody had a wonderful little chance to spend some time with their family. It's hard to believe that summer is over and that it's time to start thinking about things. You know, this weekend I was thinking, man, I really need to change the oil in my snowblower. Ugh, not ready for that yet. But football's on. The nights are a little bit cooler. Even uh, Aaron from our office this week came out with the uh, the planning for the annual Insight Wealth Group Chili Cook-Off competition, which is a uh, aggressive rivalry at the office. So I can't believe that's happening already. But seasons are changing. Not much changed in the markets this week. The concerns stemming from Chairman Powell's Jackson Hole remarks continued to leave the market a little bit jittery. It's a place I would suggest we're going to be in at least until we get the August inflation data, which comes out a week from when I'm recording this, so a week from Monday. We'll have a better understanding at that point about what we should expect from the Fed later this month. Right now, the expectations on what the Fed is going to do continue to kind of bounce around between a 60 and 75% odds that they're going to do a 75 basis point hike. We'll see. Hard to say. Because there wasn't a heck of a lot of news last week, holiday weeks tend to do that, we thought we would dive into a new topic. I thought I'd discuss something that we haven't spent a lot of time here on this topic before, and that's housing. And particularly why I think and we think that rental housing may be an excellent opportunity as we are going through this time of surging inflation. So most of the folks who listen to me who are clients know we have kept a significant sleeve of multifamily housing in our client portfolios really since the founding of the firm back over a decade ago. And the basis for that decision goes all the way back a little further than that to the great financial crisis of 0809. And I think that that starting point, that series of issues continues to impact our decisions on investment policy today. Everyone knows the 08 story by now, right? Banks were handing out loans to literally anybody who could breathe at that point. I'd add with much encouragement from the government. I don't think they get enough blame for what happened in 2008. That's a whole nother discussion. But people who never had an opportunity to own a home finally did. And in some cases, that was great news. That was, those people deserved that opportunity, but also we had a lot of people who had no business owning a home, or at least not owning a home that they bought into. I will always remember the movie, The Big Short, and this gets a little bit blue, but at one point the lead character is in Las Vegas at a convention, and he is talking to, let's call her a adult entertainer, and she begins to ask him about her multiple mortgages and whether or not she should be concerned. And he realizes that she owns multiple homes because she was able to get mortgages for them. And it's a great example of how bad things had gotten in 2008. 
And that house of cards inevitably came tumbling down and it put a screeching halt to home construction. I include, uh, there's a lot of data in the weekly insight memo this week, some good charts that I would encourage you to look at. I'll try to walk through them so you can understand them. But what we saw is that the end of 2006, we built, I think, 2.07 million homes in 2006. By 2009, that number was down to 550,000 homes. The, the amount of new housing starts had dropped by 75 percent over the course of three years. And we have never yet got back up to the levels that we saw in 2003, 4, 5, and 6. You know, we peaked in 2021 at 1.6 million new housing starts. That was the highest number that we'd seen since 2002. In 2002, we were at 1.64. But what that chart also doesn't point out, the one that's included in the Weekly Insight, is what's happened so far this year with housing starts. And I don't think it's going to surprise you that with rising costs, you know, inflation, and then rising interest rates, new housing starts have actually slowed this year. The July data showed a 10% month-over-month drop and an annualized expectation for new housing starts at about 1.44 million. So that's down about 9.6% from 2021. So there's no doubt that the housing market needed to cool off after 2008 or really before 2008. But it did not just cool off. It went into a deep freeze. In fact, every year since 2008, we have constructed less homes, fewer new housing units, excuse me, than our economy needs based off of the number of household formations that are happening. Freddie Mac, which you know, you've know you heard of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac is kind of its sister. Freddie Mac, which is one of the largest housing lenders in the world, estimates that we have a shortage of 3.8 million housing units right now in the United States. And that number is growing every single year as we build fewer homes than are needed. So we saw the big spike in housing starts in 2021. That was driven by pretty simple economics whole lot of cash flooded the system and interest rates went to their lowest levels that we've seen. Builders couldn't keep up with the demand, especially when you consider how difficult it was to get housing supplies. It was an exciting period to be a home buyer. And frankly, it made some sense to go chase after that dream home when it was more affordable than it might have ever been or might ever be again. I will tell you that I refinanced my home back in what was it? It was in 2020. And I got a 15-year mortgage at 1.875%. I love my wife dearly. And I've looked at her several times and I said, we're never moving until that loan's paid off because that's free money. And many people took those opportunities, but many people took that opportunity of that low interest rate to go out and buy a home that was maybe at the upper end of the bracket of what they could afford. Something that because they could get a 2.5% 30-year mortgage on it, yeah, they could squeak that payment by, but if that number was 3 or 4%, they would never have been able to afford that home. So the supply side issues from COVID continue to drive up the price to build very quickly. And while those prices have retreated, they're still unnaturally high. I include a chart on in the memo on lumber prices today, the PPI number for lumber and wood products. And what you see is that it still remains substantively elevated above where it was pre-pandemic. And then we got the rise in interest rates. I will be the first to say it was undoubtedly the right response in the face of rising inflation, but the cost to borrow money to buy a home has skyrocketed. Uh, as of the end of last week, the average 30-year home mortgage in the United States for a new home mortgage was 5.66%, well over twice what it was a couple of years ago. Now, relatively speaking, 5.66% is not historically high. 
I think the long-term average for a 30-year home mortgage is something like six or six and a half percent. I can't tell you the number of clients I've had conversations with who remind me that when they bought their first home, mortgage rates were in the teens. If you go back to 1981, we saw mortgage rates above 18%. But when you combine 5.66% with the higher cost of homes, it starts to become a notable change in prices. Now let's shift gears for a second because amidst all of this, you've probably also seen articles talking about the rising cost to rent. That could either be rent a home or rent an apartment. Many of the articles paint a picture of greedy landlords taking advantage of their tenants. I'm sure there are some examples of that, right? I mean, we all know that slumlords exist in this world who do take advantage of people. But market dynamics tend to even those problems out. They're not as widespread as some might think they are. But there's no question that rents have been rising. But while they've been rising, they are not rising nearly as fast as the cost to own a home. I include some data from a group called John Burns Real Estate Consulting. And what it shows is that in June of 2022, the year-over-year change in the cost to own had risen 37%. So that's the cost of interest expense. That's the cost of home repairs, the cost of insurance. The average cost to own a home had risen 37%. The change in the cost to rent an apartment had gone up 6% in the last 12 months. It is now substantively cheaper to rent a home than it is to buy. In fact, John Burns Consulting goes a step further and actually does the math and shows that it costs about $850 more per year right now to own a home than it does to rent. And now we get to the case of why multifamily might make sense as an investment class, even in surging inflation and rising interest rates. Because as the data we just talked about shows, owners of rental housing are not going to be lacking for customers anytime soon. There's way too little housing and the cost to own a home is skyrocketing. So between that shortage of housing and the rising cost, rentals will continue to be a hot commodity. But before we invest in multifamily, we also have to understand where the value comes from. How do you make a buck buying an apartment building and flipping it or buying an apartment building and owning it? Now, this process is much more complicated than I'm about to make it, but I think there's two key components to this and it's driving rents and it's seeing cap rates fall. And and I hear these two things talked about, but I don't ever really hear people explaining them. So we're going to go through some examples and we're going to start with cap rates. Cap rates, something all the real estate nerds talk about. It means capitalization rate. It's a concept that gets discussed a lot, but I don't think anybody ever stops to spell out the math to people. I know I had to go look it up the first time I heard the term 15 years ago and begin to understand it. And so we're going to go through it. So simply put, a cap rate is the return expectation that a buyer of real estate has when they're making that investment to buy a piece of real estate. So let's imagine uh, a a property that produces $1 million a year of net operating income. Net operating income is basically the return after expenses. If that buyer wanted to get a 5% return on a property that had $1 million of net operating income, they would run a formula that is pretty simple. They would take that net operating income and divide it by the capitalization rate, and that would get you to a purchase price. So if it's a $1 million of NOI and a 5% cap rate, you take $1 million, you divide that by 0.05, and that brings you to a purchase price of $20 million. So if you're willing to pay $20 million for that property, you will get a 5% return on your money. 
money because you're going to get a million dollars of profit each year. But let's say that they wanted a higher return. Let's say they were gunning for a 6% return on their money and the existing NOI stays flat. In that case, you would take a million dollars, you would divide it by 0.06 and what you get to is 16.666667 million dollars. So you pay less if you want a higher return on that NOI. So the higher the cap rate, the lower the purchase price and vice versa. For the last decade, we have made a lot of money in multifamily real estate because cap rates were falling. So if we use that same example, and let's say that we bought a property with our investors at a cap rate of 5% for $20 million, and a year later sold it at a cap rate of 4%, you'd make 5 million bucks. You'd make 5 million bucks, frankly, without doing much else. Just run the property for a year, turn around and sell it. If the cap rate drops, you're making $5 million on that property. That's pretty substantial. But that is not the only way to make money in multifamily. That's, you know, I don't want to say it's the lazy way. That's the wrong way to put it because there are a lot of smart people out there that have figured out how to do this well and they deserve credit. And we've had the opportunity to partner with a lot of them. But there is another variable here that we also have to remember from the formula. And that other variable is net operating income. And that is a a function of rents, and it's a function of how efficiently you can operate your property. It is really, NOI is the measure of how good of an operator you are, and cap rate is the measurement of how hot the market is. So if the market is cooling or remaining flat, as may happen as interest rates continue to rise, then you have to look for how else can you drive property value. And that's going to be driven by raising NOI. So let's do the math again. Let's say that we bought that million dollar property with a 5% cap rate. We spent $20 million on it. And we grew net operating income by 6% a year for five years. Why do I use 6% a year? I use it because that is what rents are growing right now. Who knows if that's going to be true in the future, but let's just use that as the example. So if we grow it by 6% a year, 6% rent growth for five years, we'd see NOI go up by 30%. Now NOI, instead of being a million dollars, would be $1.3 million. So now let's keep the cap rate the same. Let's say that after five years, cap rates haven't moved but NOI has gone up. So now take your $1.3 million and divide it by 0.05. And what you get to is a purchase price or sales price in this scenario of $26 million. So the cap rate money, that that growth in, in profitability through cap rate compression, that money may have already been made. I don't know that we can count on cap rates continuing to compress, especially when interest rates are rising. So it's becoming more expensive to borrow money to go out and buy an apartment building. But in, in an environment where customers abound and there is a shortage of this product of housing and customers have more cash than they've ever had before, I still think that makes a compelling argument for multifamily apartment buildings, that type of property in a portfolio. How to do it, you've got to partner with people who really know what they're doing because now that measurement of how good an operator is, that measurement being NOI is going to be really, really important to driving that equation. So just food for thought. I'd encourage you to think about it. We love this asset class, and I think it's going to make sense into the future. With that said, we'll wrap it up. As always, I would encourage you to bump us. If you have any questions, you can always visit us at the website at www.insightwealthgroup.com or give us a call here at the office at 515-273-1333. I hope you have a fantastic week. We will be back next week as we count down to the new inflation data. Talk to you soon. Take care. Securities offered through Arate Wealth Management, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, NFA. 
Investment advisory services offered through Arate Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment firm.